And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We are going to talk about perseverance. And a lot of times, when we talk about perseverance, we talk about the Apostle Paul. He's kind of the perseverance poster boy, if you will. He talks a lot about it. He's very wise on the subject. But last time I was here, we talked about endurance, which is very closely related to perseverance. And we talked about the Apostle Paul. So I wanted to kind of take a different angle on perseverance. And so I wanted, what I wanted to do is, is find a couple of key characters in the Bible who showed endurance or perseverance in a different way. Because perseverance can vary depending on your situation. Sometimes it's just holding on, right? It's just saying, blocking out all distractions, right? Not falling to any temptations that seem really good in the moment, but just weathering the storm. But sometimes there's action you have to take or not take, or there's something you have to do in order to continue. Perseverance is not always just holding on, but often perseverance requires action. Now, before we get into these stories, when I think perseverance, I think of my little baby brother, Malachi. Now, I call him my little baby brother because he towers above me and is much wider than me and just bigger than me in general. I look kind of like the, uh, like the free version of him, right, if we were an app. And, uh, and so he's a big boy. And, uh, but he was not always. He was, when I was maybe 16 or 17, he was only like 12 or 13, and he was tiny. Like, had not hit his growth spurt yet, and, um, I mean, was just like half my size. And so naturally, as brothers did, we wrestled all the time, every single day. And uh, we just woke up, right? We got something to eat, and now it's on, right? WWE style, here we go. And every single time I won, and those were the good old days. I missed them very much. But every single time I won because I was like twice his size, except for there were a couple of key times where he figured out how he could win, right? Because he was not bigger than me. He was not stronger than me. He was not faster than me. But his secret weapon was perseverance. Here's what he would do. We would wrestle and I would pin him and I'd be like, all right, I win. And I would start to get up and I would just hear this little voice as I'm leaving say, is that all you got, you wimp? I'm like, oh, no, it's not. So I'd go over and I'd beat him up some more and I'd pin him and I'd start to walk and I would just hear, I'm not done with you. And I was like, okay, here we go. So I'd give him some more and then I would start to walk away and I'd just hear, first one to leave the room loses. Okay, so I go back and we do this like six, seven, eight, nine, ten until finally I'm tired of beating him up. I've used all my moves and I'm like, man, I just I want to go do something else. But he was relentless. He was persistent. And so finally I'd be like, okay, you win. I'm leaving. And he'd stand up and be like, champion. Right. And that was his moment. He showed great perseverance. And so I looked up what is the definition of perseverance as we study it this morning. And that is persistence is doing something despite difficulty or delay. Doing something despite difficulty or delay. And like I said, there's a lot of different situations that require different types of perseverance. Sometimes it's just waiting. Sometimes it's taking action. So I looked up three different scenarios of perseverance in the Bible that I think we can all relate to a lot. Number one is perseverance through confusion. Perseverance through confusion. Because Satan uses confusion to pull people away from Jesus Christ. 
right? It's not only knowing what is right and wrong and having to choose one or the other. Satan makes it much more complicated than that. What he does is he tries to make right seem wrong and wrong seem right, and then you're not even sure if what you're fighting for is what you're supposed to be fighting for. The world around us doesn't just promote sin. It attempts to redefine it as good. And that's what pulls so many away because we think we're doing what is right. We're doing what the world says is good and is celebrated. And in reality, it's actually very much against the direction that we should be going. Sometimes when we read scripture, it's difficult to understand, which discourages us, right? Sometimes it talks literally. Sometimes the stories are are metaphoric and figurative and descriptive and don't mean literally what they say. And then sometimes... Jesus, all the time pretty much, Jesus talks in riddles. And we're like, Jesus, man, why can't you just talk straight and tell me how to live my life, right? It gets frustrating, right? And there's a a specific reason for each thing, but it doesn't make it any less frustrating. Sometimes bad things happen to good people and we are just left wondering why. How do we persevere when we don't even understand what's going on or why it's happening? Well, I think... To better understand this, we have to look to Scripture to a man who was frequently getting it wrong. And that is the Apostle Simon Peter. Simon Peter, he ended up doing amazing things, right? He brought the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation to the Gentiles in a world where it was only for the Jews. That was huge, right? That was breaking barriers of all kinds, right? He was the the stone, the building block of the early church and got things going after Jesus ascended. He did amazing things, but he wasn't always this super leader Christian, right? A lot of times he got it wrong, just a couple of them, the Mount of Configuration. Toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he brought all of his disciples on to a mountain. And he was showing them that he was the Son of God. And he was like glowing, and it was like a lot like I picture, like the Beauty and the Beast scene where the beast turns back into a man. And uh, probably not, but that's what I think of. And, uh, and so that happened, and he's trying to tell his disciples like who he is and what he's about. And as he's doing this, Moses and Elijah... Right? They appear with Jesus to further prove Jesus' point of who he is. And Peter doesn't get it. He's like, oh, we have guests. Allow me to make you a tent and you can join our crew. And Jesus is like, no, 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 they're not joining our crew. Like They're just here to prove a point. Like You don't really understand what's going on. Peter didn't get it. Right? Continuing on, when Peter walked on water... He's like, oh, there's Jesus. I'm going to walk out to him, right? And so he walks out and he starts to sink. And he's like, oh, man, now I'm sinking and I don't know what to do. I'm not sure if Peter could swim. Probably, but let's not assume. And so he's freaking out and Jesus grabs his hand and pulls him up. And is like, you didn't have enough faith. Peter thought he had what it took to get to Jesus, but he got it wrong, right? And I'm sure in that moment, he was very confused. Very confused. And the last one, the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Right before Jesus was arrested, as he's being arrested. All that time beforehand, Jesus tells his disciples, this has to happen. I have to go down and raise up again three days later. He made it very clear to them what needed to happen. And yet, when it started to happen, Peter whips out his sword and he's like, takes the ear, right? And, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. You have not heard a word I've said, right? He puts the ear back on. And I imagine Peter just being like, uh, I have no idea what's going on here. I thought we were fighting. Now we're not, not really sure. Peter was consistently getting it wrong, consistently confused, but that didn't discourage him. It may have temporarily, right? We do see Peter get confused and afraid and deny Jesus. 
But that's not the end of his story because Peter persevered through the confusion. So what did he do to persevere? Better question, how do we persevere through confusion? It's the same answer to both questions. Number one, he put his trust in Jesus over his own confusion. He put his trust in Jesus over his own confusion, right? He didn't say, if I just work harder, I'm going to understand it all, right? If I just study more, I'm going to get it, and then it'll all make sense. And once I understand it, then I'll put my faith here. Yet he had a faith, right, that was beyond understanding. He got to a point where he would say, I don't understand. I'm not going to get it, but I believe that Jesus does. And so I will blindly follow And that's what we have to do. We have to have a faith that goes beyond our understanding. Because once we get to a point where we can say, I don't understand, and I might never understand, but I know that Jesus does, then that opens up a whole other list of possibilities of what God can do through us. Because if we're limited to our own understanding, there's only so far we can go. But if we're following God and his infinite understanding, there's no limit to what he can do through each and every one of us. So persistence, perseverance through confusion. That's number one. Number two, we see perseverance through injustice, right? When when you're doing everything right and you're working hard to be morally upstanding and do all the things that you need to do and care for everybody, right? Just like Jesus did. And you're, you're going strong, but bad things are still happening. People are mistreating you, right? It's unfair. It's unjust. It's out of your control because other people are persecuting you and doing all these things. Perseverance through injustice. Now, when we think perseverance through injustice, I think of one man specifically, and that would be Joseph, right? Joseph lived a life of injustice, Joseph, you know, I'm not saying he never did anything wrong, but in the grand scheme of things, all the bad things that happened to him were not a result of his sin, right? It was part of this master plan. What happened was Joseph, right? His father loved him the most and his brothers got jealous. And so they went to kill him, but they decided, you know what? Let's just sell him. So Joseph's ripped away from his family and sold into Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, he starts doing well for Potiphar, the man he was sold to. And so things are actually starting to look up. God's blessing him even in this foreign land where he never wanted to be, right? And he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife and she makes him move on him. But because he is morally upstanding, he says, no, right? He's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep making my God proud in everything I do. She doesn't take too kindly to that. So she lies about him, says that he forced himself on her. Potiphar's not very happy about that. Sends him to prison. So again... Joseph has been morally upstanding. Joseph has been fighting to make the best of a bad situation, and yet now it's getting even worse. But he doesn't give up, even in prison, right? Even when he is in the lowest of the low, he meets the, uh, the bread maker and the cupbearer, and he interprets their dreams through the power of Jesus, and he does everything he can to help them get back where they need to be. And as the cupbearer is getting reinstored to his spot, Joseph says, oh, one thing, remember me. Don't forget me. Don't leave me down here. And he says, I got you, right? You helped me, I'll help you. Two years go by. Nothing, right? The cupbearer forgot. He didn't say anything about Joseph, and he leaves him to rot. Joseph is doing good. Joseph is pressing on. Joseph is persevering. And yet things out of his control, injustice, keep bringing him down. 
But as we know, that's not the end of his story because he stayed faithful. He stayed persevering. And the cupbearer finally does remember him and he gets brought up to Pharaoh, interprets his dream, ends up in charge of all of Egypt, saves Israel from a famine. But Joseph didn't know that was going to happen. Joseph only knew that he was in prison and he didn't know what was going to happen the next day. So the question is, how did Joseph persevere? And better yet, when we are victims of injustice, when we are trying and being brought down, how do we persevere? Well, first, we have to look at the heart. Because Joseph refused to let the injustice of others harden his heart. Because that's where we fall, right? Somebody does something mean to us, somebody mistreats us, and we harden our heart toward them. And subconsciously toward God. We say, all right, if that's the way they're going to treat me, then you know what? I'm just going to close myself in, right? I'm not going to do anything for them. I'm going to look out for me. And your heart starts to become hard. And pretty soon, you're not even the same person that you were. You stop loving. You stop caring, right? And your heart becomes hard. And you will never reach your full potential in Christ if your heart is hardened through the process. So he refused to let his heart be hardened. He refused to feel sorry for himself. Rather, he was continually focused on serving others. That part amazes me, right? Because Joseph had every reason in the world to wallow in self-pity, right? To be mad at God, to be mad at everybody else, right? I can just picture being like, I didn't ask for any of this. And yet here I am. You know what? Just, just forget it. That would have been honestly justified, but he didn't. He had faith. He trusted that there was a plan in all of it. He trusted God's process. He trusted that God was fighting for him through the injustice, and he never gave up, right? And we saw his end was amazing, the things he did for Christ, but he had to keep his heart usable. He had to not harden to the injustice, to the mistreatment, but see people the way God saw people, but keep going and trust God. We see a theme of trusting God here through the confusion, through the injustice. And finally, we're going to look at perseverance through our own mistakes because it's kind of the opposite of injustice. Injustice is when somebody else does something to us. But when we have to persevere through our own mistakes, we have to get out of the hole that we dug ourselves. And that's really hard. Facing the consequences of what we've done sometimes is the hardest thing of all. Trying to get through that guilt, trying to get through that shame, trying to just get back to a place where we can do what we were meant to do without being crippled by the thought of what happened or by the, the coming consequences. This exact thing happened to King David. To King David, right? So King David, uh, we're going to look at a um, little backstory, right? He, uh, he was chosen to be the next king at a young age. He, uh, he had faith, and uh, he fought Goliath, right? And God gave him that victory. And then he starts to gain popularity. And Saul doesn't like that, right? Saul doesn't like everybody hyping up about the new king. And he's like, I don't, I don't like this at all. I'd like to focus on the current king. And so he, his heart, it hardens, right? And he turns to a dark place and he starts hunting David to kill him, right? Because he is so power hungry and scared and afraid that he's going to lose his control. He decides, I'm just going to take him out. So Saul hunts him, right? And David has multiple chances to kill Saul which would seem very justified, right? This dude's trying to kill me. Now I got a chance to get him. Got him, right? That's what, uh, that's what I would think, honestly, but he doesn't, right? Multiple times, he doesn't. 
There's even a time where he came up behind him, took a piece of his cape, was like, snip, snip, and then walked away. He's like, hey, I could have got you, but I didn't. You're welcome, right? He shows restraint. He shows that he sees Saul as a child of God, even when Saul is coming to kill him, right? And so we see this amazing, morally upstanding character from David. So David becomes king. Things are going well. God is blessing his kingdom. He's even referred to as a man after God's own heart. You don't see God saying that about a lot of people in Scripture. That's a pretty impressive title. However, in all of that moral upstanding and all of that faith and trust in God, David is not, uh, he is not resistant. He's not immune. There we go. He is not immune to the temptations around him. And it starts with just a little tiny thing, right? People generally don't crumble in a day. It's step by step until you realize you're so far down this road, you're not sure if you can come back. And that's exactly what happened. It started out when it was time for his nation to go to battle. He sent them away, but he stayed in his palace. And that was weird because it was very customary for the king to lead his army into battle. But for whatever reason, he didn't. He said, you know what? The army's got it. I'm going to stay. I'm going to relax. I'm going to look out for me and everything's going to be fine. Right? There's the first step. Not a huge deal, seemingly, but he takes it. So now because he's back at his palace instead of out to battle where he should be, he finds himself on his rooftop. And as he's looking out at his kingdom, there is another man's wife bathing on top of the roof. Right, And so when he should look away, when he should go back in or rather back to battle with his people, he lingers, he stays, he lusts, he lets his mind go to places that it should not go. And he hatches a plan. Right, He says, I need her. Right? Finds out she's married. Doesn't matter. He says, I need her. So he invites her to the palace. One thing leads to another and now she's pregnant. So David is a good ways down this road that he should not be on. But instead of turning back, he says, it's easier for me to take one more step this way than five more steps to get back where I started. One step just seems easier. So he says, you know what, instead of coming clean, because that would be a big ordeal and I would look really bad. I'm just going to cover it up. So he invites uh, her husband, right, to come back uh, from the battle and hoping that he'll sleep with his wife, that he can just say the baby is theirs and no one will ever know. But this man, Uriah, the husband, he is of upstanding moral character, much like David used to be. And so he doesn't even go in his house. He says, if my people are out fighting and away from their wives, then I will not go in. And he stays and sleeps at the door of the palace, right? Doesn't even go into his house. And David's like, you got to be kidding me, right? What a time for moral integrity. He's like, this ruins my plan. So he's like, okay, I got to get a new plan. So again, instead of just making things right doing the best he can with the situation that he's now in, he takes another step this way. Actually, he takes like 10 more steps this way because he talks to his commanders and he says, hey, put Uriah on the front line, send them into the most dangerous part of the battle and then retreat, right? Basically, have him killed. And that's what they do and that's what happens. And after Uriah is killed and his wife, Beth, wife Bathsheba has mourned his death, David takes Bathsheba into the palace, makes her his wife, and pretends like nothing ever happened, right? He's like, all right, it's all good. But it wasn't all good because even if nobody else saw it, God did. So he sends the prophet Nathan to call him out. And he calls him out and finally David realizes the gravity of what he did. And he repents, right? He says, I'm sorry, this is wrong. How can I fix this? 
And that's the question. How can he fix it? How can he get out of a hole that's so deep it doesn't seem like there's any way back to who he used to be? Right? Because now, not only does he have to come clean to everybody about what happened, he has to face the consequences for his actions. And in this specific scenario, the consequences for his actions, God said, I'm going to take the child that Bathsheba conceived, right? The child that was conceived in this sinful journey. And so David, even though it's fair, it's just, he prays. He goes, God, please don't do this, right? I'm sorry, right? If there's any other way, you know, let's try something else, but don't take the child, right? And ultimately, the child will be in heaven with God, so it's not gone forever. But David doesn't have a life with his child, and that's devastating. So he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and finally, the time comes, and God takes the child because of David's mistakes, because of the hole that David dug himself in. But David's reaction is where things finally change. Because you can imagine, if that would happen, how easy it would be to be furious at God. Be like, God, what the heck? Like, I know I did wrong, but I asked if there was another way. How could you do this? This isn't fair. I could very easily see someone hardening their heart, letting that moment define the rest of their life and never getting past it. I feel like, honestly, that is what would happen with most people, but that's not what happened with David. This is how David persevered through this. And we find the answer in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 15 through 20. I'm going to read it uh, from Scripture here. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 15 through 20. So, the Lord just took the child, and it says... And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted, and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead. He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He went in to the house of the Lord and worshipped. An amazing response. Because David hits a point where he finally faces the consequences of, an a- of his actions. Instead of letting it bring him down, define him for the rest of his life, he says, okay, you know what? What's done is done. I'm going to get right with God and I'm going to take one step at a time back in this direction. And that is the only way to persevere through the consequences of our own mistakes because Satan tells you that that is your defining moment, that that is who you are from here on out, and you can never get past it. David couldn't go back and bring Uriah back to life. He couldn't go back and not talk to Bathsheba, right? Those things were done. But what he could do was admit what he did, accept the consequences, get right with God, and take one step at a time back in the right direction. And that is the only way to persevere through the consequences of our mistakes, right? What's after that is after he starts taking steps, the very next thing he does 
He goes and he joins his troops in battle. The thing that he should have done that started everything. He got back to the very root of the problem one step at a time and finally got back where he needed to be, leading Israel to a great victory. He didn't let his mistakes define him. He took one step at a time, getting right with God, and he moved past it. We can't stay stuck in the past. So when you look at it, when you look at all three, persevering through confusion, persevering through injustice, and persevering through our own mistakes and the guilt and shame that comes with it, it all comes down to trust. Perseverance is based on trust. Do you trust God enough to have faith when nothing makes sense? Do you trust that God is the answer when you don't even understand the question? Do you trust God enough to give your best to a world that gives you its worst? To refuse to let the world harden your heart with the way they treat you and the way that things happen, but to be persistent in seeing the world the way God sees them no matter what? Do you trust God enough to accept the consequences of your mistakes and come back home when it seems like an impossible journey? But the same way that you got there is the same way you get back one step at a time. And do you trust that God will get you there? Because you can't get there on your own. It is a hole too deep to get back by yourself. But by the power of God, there is no hole deep enough that you can't get out. It all comes down to trust. As we close, I want to read one more verse about trust. Because there is a moment in the Bible where we see this trust played out where we see the exact kind of trust that we need for perseverance. And I've read this passage many, many times, and I just passed over this until uh, the pastor at a church I was at, he broke it down. It was like, this is cool. You got to look deeper at this. And so this is found in Exodus, right? This is when Moses was called to take the Israelites out of Egypt. Right? So he's like, hey, he goes to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, let God's people go. Pharaoh says, not a chance. And so Moses says, all right, here's what's going to happen. God's going to send some plagues to show you that you are nothing compared to him. You think you run the show, but you don't. And so Pharaoh says, bring it on, right? So the plagues go, right? The water turns to blood, the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the boils, right? Everything happens. And each time it chips away a little bit more at Pharaoh and he starts to give. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to stay. So we come to plague number seven. And there's just something special about the number seven in scripture. And this plague, it shows something exceptional. It was the plague of hail. Hail would come down and it says it was destroying livestock. It was destroying homes. It was destroying plants, fields. It was killing people. That's how bad the storm was. These massive chunks of hail coming down and destroying everything. So Pharaoh's freaking out. He's like, okay, okay. Call Moses in here. So they get Moses to the palace somehow through this thunderstorm and this hail. And he says, all right, fine, okay? Just take away the hail, pray to your God, and we'll let you go. This is interesting. Pay close attention. Because in Exodus 9.33, it says this. It says, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. Now, upon reading it, It doesn't really seem super special at first, but it's the order of events that are particular, right? It doesn't say Moses then and there prayed that God would stop the hail and then left the temple, right? The temple or the the palace, it was in the middle of the city. But what it does say is that Moses went out of the city and then prayed 
Because if he prayed inside the city, he's safe from the hail. He doesn't have to walk out in it, right? He, God will stop it, and then he can go out. But what he did was he had faith. He had faith that he could make it from the palace to out of the city without getting hit by a single stone of hail, right? And hail was coming down like crazy. It said it was killing everything. And yet Moses had so much trust and faith in God, he didn't even have an explicit promise, right? God didn't come down and say, hey, walk out of the city. I'll make sure nothing hits you. He just believed in God so much that he wasn't even worried. So I have this picture in my mind of Moses walking out of the palace with hail and thunder and lightning falling all around him, striking down everything. And yet Moses boldly walks because he trusts God. So when we are walking through life and confusion and injustice and our own guilt are crashing all around us, trying to cripple us at every turn, will you trust that God is more powerful than the storm? Will you persevere? Will you guys pray with me? Dear Lord, we come to you today, and Lord, we just pray that you give us trust. Trust in you to persevere through each and every hard time in life. Lord, when we don't understand why something is happening the way it's happening, Lord, when we don't understand what something means or where we are or where we're going, when we are masked in confusion of this life, we pray that we are not limited by our own understanding, but Lord, that we tap into your infinite understanding, having a faith that goes beyond our understanding, knowing that even though we don't get it, you do, and that's enough. Lord, we pray you give us that trust. Lord, we pray you give us the trust to power through injustice. Lord, to not harden our heart to the things around us and be brought down and be like the world around us. But Lord, we pray that you just give us the power to fight through, to know that even though we are being mistreated, it doesn't have to define us. It doesn't have to change us. Rather, it gives us an opportunity to model to the world what it looks like when Jesus Christ changes your heart. Lord God, we pray that you give us the trust to get through the guilt and the shame and the consequences of our own mistakes. Lord, we pray that we do not let our mistakes be a defining moment, something that says who we are for the rest of our lives. But Lord, we pray that we trust that you have the power to get us back out, even though we got in so deep. Lord, we pray that we tap into your power to get past our guilt, our shame, that we get right with you, and we know that you will help us take one step at a time until we're back where we need to be. Lord, we pray you give us the trust to walk through a world where everything is crashing down around us, but knowing that we are safe in your arms. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray for your trust in us. We pray you give us perseverance through this life because we know there is something far greater waiting for us at the other side. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Thank you very much.